Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Greasters. Hope you're having an okay week. I know it's getting, it's pretty dark, isn't it? It's getting hard. Um, I bought some candles. Went mad and bought a load of candles. I don't know if it's going to make me feel better, but um, I don't know. I'll keep you updated. I'll let you know. This week I am talking to the incredible Robert Diamond. You may know Robert already if you listen to the Talk Art podcast with Russell Tovey. It's a brilliant podcast, I can't recommend it enough. If you know, Even if you think, oh I don't know anything about art, just listen to it. Because that's sort of the premise of starting from a completely egalitarian point of view of just, we just like art, we're going to talk about it. It really is a wonderful, wonderful show. He's a former musician and director of the Carl Friedman Gallery. An extremely interesting person and I was really, really grateful that he gave up his time during lockdown to speak to me. Robert came in to talk to me about his brother, who died when they were teenagers. Diament. Diament, yeah. That's interesting. I want to hear about this. Yeah, so um, it's not actually my my birth name. My birth name is related. It's like spelt differently. It's D-I-M for mother, E-N-T. And um, I was in a pop band when I was a kid and... I started doing music from a really young age, like 14 or something. And oh, my, wow. um, my manager I had in my late teens was like, Diment sounds like Demented. So um, <laughs> it's not very pop. So we added an A to it, which made it a bit like they, they wanted me to be Diamond. And I was just like, no, because that doesn't feel like me. So I made it Diamond, which um, has now stuck because when you have two albums out uh, and you do it for 15 years, people yeah. then know you as that. So um, I kept it in my art career and uh now podcasting i like career. it i like um, it yeah Rob but actually Diamond. i'll get onto that in a bit because i think part of the reason i wanted to have that distance was to do with um with the grief and all that oh, stuff yeah it was somehow yeah it is interesting it's quite uh and i've only realized that in the last few years yeah it takes time doesn't it <laughs> it takes time for these things to drop in your podcast we should talk about very briefly talk art is i love it it's so good it's so good <laughs> 
You've been doing a lot of episodes in quarantine, I've oh noticed. Oh my gosh, we've recorded about 40 or something. It's just been like non-stop. I co-host it with Russell Tovey, the actor, yeah. and we're best friends. And the podcast was a big accident, actually. It wasn't planned. And um, I hadn't even listened to any podcast before we did it. It was kind of a bizarre thing that happened. And I was super resistant to it because I think having done the music for so long and mm. partly why I stopped was that I hated being on stage and oh, I wow. really didn't enjoy the promotion or interviews. And I think I hadn't quite worked out who I was, to be honest. Like yeah. now in my late 30s, I completely feel confident in who I am, which I think comes through in the podcast. Like I don't yeah. care anymore what people think and I'm just like doing my thing. But the podcast has been such an amazing sort of thing for me to have because it's given me so much self-confidence and I've really enjoyed it and the biggest thing that we've realized from doing it which I think is actually very similar to yours which is actually why I started listening to yours and why I connected to it was because this idea of therapy I think it's some kind of like art mm. therapy and I think we get to sort of chat to people about their whole life and you know yes. we interviewed like Wolfgang Tillmans recently the really famous photographer and halfway through he began talking about his HIV diagnosis and um, he's become a complete kind of activist for that and I was so kind of surprised that we were talking about it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't even yeah. know. So it was a kind of amazing thing and people are really being generous and opening up. And I feel like, like, like yourself, we've kind of created a safe space in a way for um, people just to chat about what creativity is. And also there's so much connection to grief and trauma. Yeah. And that's a lot of the reason I got into art. So yeah. Yeah. So talk art has changed my life really. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because of course all art, all art is inherently personal. So yeah. of course it's wrapped up in if you have had a grief or a trauma, of course that's in there. And and I think sometimes, what I think your podcast is good at is we sometimes approach art as like, oh, art with a capital A, you have memories of school and yes. museums and you're <laughs> like, well, and you remove any personal from it. Yeah. Whereas actually the best thing about going to see any exhibition is reading this bit and being like, oh my God, that happened to them, that happened. That's what that painting is about. I yeah. see like context, yeah. which we remove all the time and expect people just to look at a picture and like it rather yeah. than be like, no, no, understand what was happening. Understand why that was radical that they did it And like there's that. a huge pressure I think people feel. Like I remember going to dinner parties and people would sit next to me and the minute I said I was a gallerist or even before that when I was in my band, you got a bit of a kind of like you're in a band like and people feel like they can't relate to it so they just don't want to yeah. talk to you and with yeah. art it's even worse though people are like sorry I don't know anything about art therefore we can't talk to each other <laughs> and I would just be like what are you talking about like everyone has an experience with art even from yeah. like being a young kid when you might make art or you know even if it's just like having postcards in your kitchen like that can be a collection do you know what I mean like it, yeah. and I think that's what we've been trying to explain to people is like art is, is actually an inclusive thing it doesn't have to be this elitist high-end kind of multi-million pound you know, big deal thing. It, it can actually be something way more personal and you can express yourself through what you look at and what you like. And we've started writing a book now. We've just finished it, actually. We handed in the um, the manuscript last week um, and it's coming out next May in 2021. And um, the first chapters are like our childhoods and like how we got into art and then oh. how we became friends. And Russell and I met through Tracy Emin, the artist. And one of the reasons we both bonded with her work was this idea of trauma and the way that she was kind of using art as a way of kind of working through her own childhood um, mm. and teens and then adulthood. And this idea of like turning trauma into something positive. We both completely connected to that. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's so interesting what, the, what art can do. It, and when you just, like you said, remove that elitist feel of it, 
and just be like just look at what's happening look at the reaction it don't judge it don't think this is good this is bad just what's the reaction mm. um well if you haven't listened to the podcast talk up you definitely definitely should it's very very interesting even if you think oh it's not for you um but obviously rob that's i could talk to you about <laughs> sadly I, I, can't go on your, yeah. I can't go on your show <laughs> apart from my my terrible drawings um so who are we remembering today today um i wanted to talk about my brother andrew um, Andrew Diment with the different spelling of <laughs> yeah Andrew Diment okay. yeah so he was my older brother and he died in 1994 um, okay. when he was 17 and I was oh. 13 gosh that's um, very young yeah he was really young and and I was young too the whole thing was quite um it was deeply shocking you know and deeply mm. traumatic but I don't think I acknowledged that until literally 10-15 years later it was like took yeah. me so long and it's um, so common with um any kind of teenage child bereavement it's so like we don't acknowledge enough how you cannot get your head around that when you're 13 14 mm. like it takes you another 10 years to be like oh what just happened like yeah. what was that do you mind me asking what happened to him yeah so he he yeah. died in a nightclub um i think oh. he actually died in hospital but he he collapsed in a nightclub in windsor because i grew oh, up gosh. in berkshire in maidenhead which was this incredibly kind of conservative safe mm. you know idyllic place and i grew up next to a town called cookham which is actually where the painter Stanley Spencer is from. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, and my mum was part of that, kind of helping promote that little museum. So we had kind of references to art in my childhood and stuff from that, but I never really liked any of it. Um, and then growing up by the river, you know, it was all super idyllic. And my parents had come from quite simple beginnings in a way. Like my mum grew up in, in Wales um, on a farm with seven brothers and sisters. And wow. um, oh, I think there were seven of them in total. And um, my dad grew up in Tenby, so my mum was from Newport, I think, and my dad was from Tenby. So they both came from these very like humble beginnings. And then through that whole like Thatcher era, they were they were the kind of people that like they were originally. I think my dad worked in animation. Um, he did like Henry's Cat and. Um, oh, my God. I loved like, Henry's Cat I think it so was that. much. I think he did something with that. And then it was that whoever the guy was behind that cartoon. Yes. I think yeah, that really distinctive. And before that, he did like the new Avengers, um, like the kind of uh, title sequence. And oh, it was yeah, the first yeah. time they had, you know, like moving animation in a tv wow. show or something so he was he, he was from a physics side like a science background but he kind of left Tenby and they went to Manchester or somewhere and then and then to London and they kind of like rose up and they were those people that kind of like made themselves and kind of you know did really well at business and my mum had a PR company and um, originally worked in the Natural History Museum so I came from that kind of thing where you've got this lovely house with a garden and it was all very chill life was great and then suddenly my brother dies and is it just died, you and him? You yeah, and it was just brother. me and yeah. him, yeah. And he died in a nightclub called Mirage, which was like this kind of, you know, like a dance nightclub in, in Windsor, um, you know, where the Queen's Castle is and everything. And yeah, that gives you an yeah. idea of what the area is like. You know, it's like super yes. kind of quaint and um, middle class. Yeah, and safe, I think, is a very, I know what you mean by like, yeah, sleepy, safe, suburban. Exactly, yeah. And you would never imagine anything like that would happen to you. Yeah. And I think that's probably why it was so devastating. And my mum and dad have worked so hard to kind of like provide for us and to, mm. and there'd been this whole thing for a long time where my brother would be, um, for years before he started smoking, and um, I remember it being this conversation between my parents and him that it was like, you know, smoking leads to cannabis, cannabis leads to, you know, heroin or something. And it yeah, was this constant yeah. threat. And then you had the whole kind of house scene that, that really grew. And my, mm. my brother became a DJ and um, 
from the age of like 15 he was DJing loads and he was also really into like Jimi Hendrix and he had a band they were, had the funniest name they were called Bellington Roots like after <laughs> Wellington Boots I mean it was so ridiculous <laughs> um and they had they you know they got really into like drawing all their own artwork and wow. um, putting out like cassette tapes and EPs that they would then sell wow. at school you know yeah. so I was watching this as like a 10 11 year old and completely obsessed with it and I think that's why I then later went into music myself yeah um, yes, nothing was, cooler than like a big brother is a, it's just like what my brother was quite similar actually like was a dj was into the oh, racing cool. and i remember just thinking like oh he, that's like obviously the coolest thing ever because yeah. i'm four years younger even though that the dj decks blaring out of his room was like the most loudest sound ever yeah, no, exactly. yeah, yeah. i completely m- can relate to that looking at somebody bigger just being like oh wow that's how you live like that's what big people do yeah and i remember coming home from school because I, I was like three and a half years younger than him so almost four years as well and um i remember coming home and the whole house would be shaking with music and i initially didn't like the dance because he'd been into like indie like the cure mm, and like the pixies right. and like all that stuff which i kind of got more i never liked it because i was i was a pop kid like i grew up listening to like prince and madonna and kylie and <laughs> i was yeah. i knew i was gay from like a really young age and i i just was very like ott with my music taste <laughs> and things like terrible bands like shampoo they were oh, just amazing shampoo, I they love were amazing shampoo. they were like so girl power cool. before the spice girls i loved them yeah. i knew every word um <laughs> and actually i remember my brother coming up one summer i think it was the summer before he died and i'd learned the words to trouble like uh oh, we're, oh, we're in trouble and i'd been singing it in my bedroom and practicing it and my brother came up and was like that's so cool like he actually was really encouraging to me and he was oh. like that's amazing you've learned all the lyrics so even though it was like a different genre he kind yeah. of appreciated the fact that i also was finding joy and creativity in music um, so he collapsed in the in the nightclub yeah and then was taken to us so where were you at home when how did yeah, you so find he'd out he'd started going out a lot and he used to have like sort of when my parents would go away at the weekend he would invite all his friends around and he was kind of old enough that maybe they'd go away for a day or something like during the yeah. day you know out to play golf or something as you do you know in that kind of society we were living in and um and his friends would all come around and they'd sit in the garage and like smoke weed you know they'd, they'd kind of gone gone from cigarettes to weed and yeah. i tried to smoke in about 91 <laughs> at the age of 11 like no joke like so young because i was trying to impress my brother yeah. and i just never liked it and i used to like <laughs> smoke and then um breathe out the smoke instead of inhaling yeah. it or, or blow <laughs> yeah, yeah. into the cigarette so that so the cigarette <laughs> would like still go down do you know what i yeah, mean yeah, yeah. um and i remember giving up smoking like really dramatically at the age of 12 i think when i turned 12 i was like i'm quitting you know so i had it's this very like strong moral voice in me which I think came from my mum probably because Mm. I could hear her telling my brother a lot to like not smoke and she really kind of was fighting that and wanted to protect him I guess so when um yeah he, he he went out one night and they used to go out every weekend and I think he'd been to Amsterdam a few times and he was just enjoying himself you know and yeah. and I remember his friends came around that evening and I was watching TV you know like kind of like Bruce Forsyth or something <laughs> yeah. on, on a Saturday night you know and I used to love all that and I remember feeling quite sad that he was now going out and that he wasn't going to watch it with me anymore mm. and his friends came over they all they all went out and um, he just never came home again and so the next morning I think he should have come home maybe and he hadn't come home and I remember thinking like that's weird but I just figured he'd stayed at his friend um, Max's house and whatever and then I was writing an essay I always remember this about um, To Kill a Mockingbird oh my goodness because I was like 13 so I was in that kind of year where you're prepping for your GCSEs or whatever so it was starting to become a bit more serious this idea of homework 
and I just could not write it. And I wasn't interested in this book at all, even though later I realized, you know, what a great book it was. But um, I was sat there trying to write this essay and then suddenly the doorbell rings and my, my mum and my mum and my dad answered the door and it was the police. And I kind of overheard the conversation. And then my mum came up and was like, look, the police are here. Something's happened with Andrew. He's had an accident. Um, we're going to go, like, you stay here. And then can you call his workplace? So I phoned his, he was working in a garden centre in Beaconsfield. Mm. And um, I actually thought about that the other day because I knew I was doing this talk. And I remembered that I used to love going to see him at the garden centre because um, he used to get access to, like, the ice cream counter. <laughs> and um, and he, he used to give me, I think he used to nick them. I mean, it's so, of course. so illegal. But they were 50 work in a garden centre, yeah, yeah. Exactly, they were 50p Twister ice creams. Oh, you yeah, You know, those yeah. kind of yellow and green with the strawberries. Yes, inside. and you can lick so, the ice cream right off. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he used to, like, steal one, basically, at the end of every shift and then bring it for me. So That's we had so this kind cute. of very sweet friendship. Yeah. And in our young childhood, like, when we were young kids, you know, maybe, like, four to ten or something, we were much more, like odds and mm. he just thought I was some sort of like ballet dancer eccentric person that constantly wanted to put on performances for my my, my family friends he kind of liked it but not really and yeah. then he was this much cooler like rebellious you know so I called a few people up and said oh Andrew can't come to work today I remember leaving a message on their answer phone and as I said it I was kind of like what's actually happened this is so strange mm. and then I tried to go back and write my essay um, as you would and I just couldn't do it and then maybe two hours later, my dad came back and he never said like, Andrew's died. He just said, Andrew's not coming home. And he was crying. So I was like, I didn't really know what had happened. So this vicar was with him who'd driven him. So he didn't come in his car either. And I was mm. like, where's my mum? Like, it was so strange. And this vicar was kind of like, almost like apologizing to me or something. And he was very like serious and mm. um, almost kind of quiet and somber you know and I just didn't know what was going on so my dad was like hugging me and kind of crying and kind of saying Andrew's not coming home so I was like fine so then we get in the car I genuinely didn't know what had happened and yeah, we get, we so get in the car it's confusing when you're that age isn't it yeah but he'd obviously come back because they were like we've left Rob alone and they must have suddenly <laughs> felt like they wanted to protect me you know I can't mm. imagine what they were going through but um I, I got in the car and it was this little like fiat panda or something and we, we we drove all the way to high wickham and yeah and we turned up there and we we parked up and then we walked into the hospital and there was this kind of green door we were going through all those swing doors as you do in yeah. hospitals and there was this green door i always remember it with um kind of like reeded glass or mm. like frosted glass and through it i could just see the shadows of like two or three people including my mum. and my mum was crying like i'd never heard her cry before and i could see her kind of the shape of her body through the glass and i just remember being like oh my god andrew must have died and that was how i found out like it wasn't like anyone said to me yeah. andrew's died it was um yeah that was kind of how i did it and then when i walked in the room my mum just hugged me everyone broke down but i didn't because i just felt like i didn't really understand what was going on in a way i think that's so such a common thing with teenagers or especially with 13 because you really are just at, you're just on that cusp of not yeah, being and a, i was a like a month kid. from my 14th birthday oh god so yeah like it's, i was kind so of quite young. already becoming quite um independent and angsty yeah. and angry anyway <laughs> of course yeah um, it's hard to i really understand yeah because i was i was 15 nearly about three months off from being 16 i think and um when your dad died yeah, yeah. and i think like because you you just don't know what's going on like it's so it sounds so silly doesn't it but you're so confused I remember being so confused like what happened like I obviously I knew he had died we'd see like you know he'd had cancer mm. and then I remember we went back to the house and 
friends started appearing and they were crying and hugging me and I remember just like sort of like being stiff and being hugged and just being like mm, yeah because it was just like it doesn't your brain is really struggling to understand what dead means what that yeah. means that someone's yeah, totally. not coming home yeah. like you've had no experience of it you're you're like re- scrabbling for something aren't you and you just you're like well I don't I don't yeah and I feel like I don't feel I feel like I spent about 10 years just going what sorry what what just happened? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, even though I knew he's dead, carry out, that's what's happened. I just couldn't, it's just, yeah, it was so confusing. It's such confusing when you're that young. I think one of the things for us that was so different probably to your experience mm. was that because it happened out of the blue. Yes, of course, um, such a shock. You, the main thing, I think we spent years telling ourselves, I remember everyone in my family talking about it, was like, what if? Like, mm. what, what if he hadn't gone to that club? Like, what if he'd gone with a different group of friends? Mm. What if he had taken a different tablet? Because he took um, ecstasy and Mm. he he just, I think he even took like half a tablet or one tablet and and died from it. So it was kind of like, you know, what if he, it was all like, what if basically? And we lived with that for years. And then I suddenly realized it was just really unhelpful because the truth is you can't change it. And it did happen. And that's when you have to kind of accept it. But I remember, but going back to the hospital, we were in that room and then the doctors came through and said like, do do you want to say goodbye to Andrew? so I was kind of like yeah okay and my parents I think had already seen him I'm not sure but they actually took us through to like the kind of morgue room you know where they have the tables and stuff and he was there and I remember walking through and there was a whiteboard on the wall that like had his name written on it and it had kind of been like some of it had been rubbed out but it still had his name on and it was so surreal and then I walked into the room and he was there like lying lying down um and obviously he he was dead and um very pale and it was just so weird because he looked like so much more fat like he kind of looked fatter than he did if that makes sense Mm. like because I think I don't know why but it was very odd and I think they wanted I think somebody said do you want to like kiss him goodbye and I was like well no because I never kissed him in real life like when he was alive like it just felt super weird and I don't think for years I really understood maybe how traumatic that is Mm. as an experience to sort of suddenly see someone dead um Oh God, especially when you're just at home, like you said, just at home writing an essay with nothing dramatic happening in your life other than, oh, this essay's hard. Like, and then, oh, your brother's died. Like that is, that switch from sort of, like you said, cosseted, lovely childhood to, oh, real life, this is what can happen. Is That sounds so traumatic, violent almost. And I I think there was a big part that my mum and I and my dad felt that like we should have done more because the trouble is like my mum every time there'd been a newspaper she used to read the daily mail um because she's a kind of you shout, know, shout out to my my mum too <laughs> um Still i don't do think it. she reads it anymore actually i think she went off it but she, there was a period of time where when my mum was hilariously like anti-channel four and kind of like <laughs> read the daily mail and there i was as her young gay son you know um loving Derek jarman or something um but yeah i remember feeling that kind of sense of guilt that like I think I had taken on my mum's anxiety and was trying to tell my brother like but you know you've got to protect yourself because accidents Mm. happen and my brother had this very kind of like filmic kind of hero almost like James Dean or something this kind Mm. of like you know I'm gonna live forever I'm really cool like creativity make music and he was so he just was so relaxed about it and I know now there's nothing we could have done I mean accidents do happen in a way it was an accident yeah. And I remember years, years later, maybe like 10 years ago, I went for a dinner and I used to do this weird thing. Every dinner I went to, I would, one of the conversation topics would be like, oh, so, you know, where did you grow up? And I'd be like, well, my brother died. And I would always bring it up as like a dinner conversation. <laughs> and then people would be like totally shocked. And I think it was because I hadn't done enough therapy yet. And I was trying yeah. to like 
talk about it with strangers as a way of me processing it. And yeah, it's the weirdest so thing. Course, I don't do so it course. anymore at all, really. But it was it honestly was like my biggest kind of dinner conversation was to talk about my brother's <laughs> death. It was so so weird. I don't think it's weird. I think it comes from being a, a child when something happens and not having like that bit of your brain that processes I mean, you know, when I interview, I interview adults who have struggled with sudden death, with with sibling loss, with parent parental loss. And then you think you can see them going, oh, my God. And they were, you know, 25, 30. And they've struggled like you're 13. Like sometimes we just we go, oh, I was a teenager. I used to do this all the time. Go, oh, yeah, I was 15. Like that's pretty grown up because you feel quite grown up at that time. Yeah. And it took me again, like 10, 15 years to look back on that 15 year old and go, oh, I was really young. Yeah. Why am I being, why was I expecting so much of myself? Why was I expecting myself to be like, not weird about it, not bring it up, not suddenly cry and run off in parties for no reason. Like all these things you, you would like, I would berate myself for or like, oh, you're not, you're not handling it like a normal person. You're like, yeah. what the fuck? There is no normal to handle it. Like you're just a no, kid. And I, I think that idea of minimizing it and kind of shrugging yeah. it off because it's just something that happened in when you were younger and it's not really that big a deal that was definitely mm. something i i did too the problem that happened after which was really unexpected was because it he died from ecstasy at the time it was pre-internet i mean it's not like like i actually googled him yesterday to see what comes up and like hardly anything comes up because this, literally I did the same with my dad yeah. with pre-internet and it's really interesting to think if you died 10 years later how you'd be all over the internet forever yeah. you know and there's only like one thing about it from a published newspaper at the time but at the time he was on the cover of like most newspapers and wow. overnight he was everywhere and you know local newspapers national newspapers and <sighs> dying from ecstasy was this very kind of high profile discussion in the media and they yeah, were really running yeah. with it the, the sun the daily mail like all these was newspapers. this before did he die before or after leah betts he died that's... i can't remember exactly but he died i would say in my head like two three months before leah and oh, they wow. were trying to get us to our family to participate in the way that leah's did yeah and they asked for photographs of him which we denied and they they asked for interviews and all this kind of stuff and we came home and there was literally like 30 um, newspapers camped outside wow, our house and they stayed for at least a week I think so they were constantly trying and we were like a totally middle class normal family that yeah. had never done anything like that my mum worked in PR so she kind of understood it you know but but not that kind of PR do you know what I mean That's, like yeah, she wasn't no, dealing totally, with the tabloid yeah. she was promoting the National History Museum or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or you know like books and kind of cultural things but but not that kind of thing yeah because I because I'm you know we're of a similar generation. And I remember when the Leah Betts thing happened, I think I was still at primary school, but it was such a big thing. And, it, and that, it, for me, ingrained in my mind, and I'm a bit like you, the slightly performer conservative, <laughs> very anxious, it ingrained in my mind, drugs will kill you. Like, yeah. that is what will happen. Yeah. Because they, they placid that. That's obviously, poor girl, it was awful, but it was an, if you if you are young enough not to remember, it was on every front cover. It was discussed on Blue Peter, on News Round, like... That we had a policeman come into the school to talk to us about it like it was such yeah, a thing of like yeah. yeah it was huge so of course that's really I didn't realize obviously that obviously the tabloids were looking for the story to to hook it and all it, it's on. really interesting to think about as well because it's kind of before that whole celebrity culture thing happened mm. I, mean, I know they did write about Diana and there were yeah. things like that at the time but I remember going home and turning on the tv and um, he was on the local news that we used to watch oh, together. And I was sat in the same chair that I used to sit with him. And that was a, a long thing for me as well. In, in sort of the, there was a good thing about staying in the house. There was this whole discussion at one point about us moving house. 
Mm. Um, and some people were saying like you shouldn't do it some people were saying you should do it and we ended up just staying in the house and for me I think that really helped to grieve even though I say you know I didn't grieve it until 10 years later or something I think it does help to stay in the house to have your routines without that Mm. person there anymore but it's one of the most painful things to experience when you come home from school and he's no longer sat in the chair he used to be sat in and I'd be watching news round on my own you know and I remember seeing him on tv though and just being like this is so surreal and then the newspapers and then what happened because of Leah Betts it just heightened that interest even more Mm. so every time someone died we would hear a phone ring and the phone would just ring and ring and ring and ring to the point where I stopped answering the house phone and my mum I think we even used to unplug the phones in the house like whenever every time someone died and the worst story was um which I only remembered the other day actually was I think about five days after my brother had died my mum and dad had gone out to see the vicar because they, they went to a local church in Cookham, which is also where I learned to sing. And, you know, it was part of our childhood. Yeah, so they'd gone off, I think, just to talk to the vicar about maybe it was even about the funeral. I can't even remember. And my grandparents were there and the doorbell rang and I was upstairs in my room, which became a kind of haven for me. And um, I heard this voice and they were saying they knew my mum and dad. And I was like, I don't recognise that voice. And they came in the house with my grandma waiting for my parents. And I walked down the stairs and they were sort of walking through to the kitchen. And I was like, hi, who are you? And um, he was like, oh, hi, I'm from the Today newspaper. Um, Have you got a quote for me about your brother's death? How are you feeling? You know, when's the funeral? Here's my card. And my my grandparents were so shocked. And they, they were like, get out of our house. And they like kicked him out of the house. And, you know, it's that kind of stuff that happens that's so awful because that never leaves you and it's that sense of can you imagine like my parents must have felt so protective over me after that and that's what I was mentioning in the beginning of the podcast about changing my surname Mm. I remember my mum particularly being very like you shouldn't talk about this that much you know like in public or anything like that and I think for years it took me a long long time to ever really be myself in public so I think the whole of I, I started writing songs the day after my brother died um because he'd been in a band and i'd played classical piano for a long time and the day after he died i'd started listening to tori amos and (sighs) i wrote this song called all the boys hate him because at school i was being heavily bullied for being gay even at that age like 13 and i felt very like i didn't have many friends and um, i wrote this song just by hitting the keys in a kind of formation so it was almost about how the the keys looked not how they sounded so it was i didn't know what chords were at that point yeah and um i managed to write this whole song kind of based on tori amos's song all the girls hate her which was a b-side and then every day until i was probably 20 i wrote a song so it became this therapy for me there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Obviously, people can't see. I was like grabbing myself when you described what that journalist did. I was like holding my collar because I feel like that is so awful. And I'm so glad you are talking about it because we, we do talk, not on this show, but, you know, there's a, a talk in this country of like, oh, the press. And yes, we know we have terrible press. And obviously I know things have changed since since then. 
But I think anybody who's in the club, who's a griever, can understand how violating that must have been, especially at 13, to have someone speak to you like that and to know at 13, oh, I'm not safe. I have to protect my family now because of the way my brother died. Like that is, oh, and your poor grandparent, that just must have been so, so traumatic. And I just really, really feel for you because I, you know, I grew up in a similar sounds like similar mm. edge of London on the you, know, you can get a train into London but we're not really London and that society is already like you said afraid of drugs judgmental of, pe- of kids who take them not understanding you know that some people just are just having fun and living their life and then like you said this accident that just happened to be twisted into sensationalizing it I just yeah I that is just it's just I just want to say it's disgusting like it's yeah, disgusting it that that happened to and you actually I've just remembered we actually I think we actually ended up doing an article ourselves in the today newspaper like maybe three weeks just to kind of deal died, with it because they just wouldn't go away yeah and I remember the images they were using of my brother weren't from us so they didn't look like him I think he had like short hair in a lot of the pictures whereas when he died he had really long hair and he he, he had that kind of like rock star kind of look yeah. about him and I think they just got like an old school photo from when he was like 14 so even that it felt I remember feeling quite violated by that like Mm. this idea that like the picture of him on the news the picture of him on the front cover of the newspaper and I'm sure he was in the Daily Mail and I remember it coming getting getting delivered and it was very surreal because it was like that's the paper my mum reads and it was all super you know it's just a very surreal odd time and then I remember my because my brother had written so much music and I think on his tombstone whatever I think we actually put a phrase from one of his songs which was like keep smiling through and I think I then wrote a poem based on that which we published in that newspaper with a proper picture of him and something and then we spoke a bit about it but the way we did it was actually quite creative and I remember feeling very happy about that at that time because I felt like it actually represented him and it represented something more soulful and more kind of human than the than the way they were just trying to make money out of it yeah and also it sounds like more in your control and more uh, truth truthful to him because at that time I remember like I was saying the other day to my friend like that time like it was so the teenagers were so in the news it was like girls will get pregnant that's the worst thing that could happen and mm. boys or girls will take drugs and that's also like it was such a thing that they teenagers were these dangerous awful creatures and especially that daily male mentality no wonder for me like no wonder you were in shock for so long no wonder you're bringing it up at dinner parties because your poor little brain is probably still going what <laughs> like, actually I, I don't think I realized for a long time how rejected I felt by his death Mm. so when he died I think I took it as this massive rejection somehow like I'd done something wrong like I hadn't helped him and and that somehow I'd been like a bad brother or something I've had a number of different kind of therapies in my life in my adult life um that have really helped me come to terms with it but I think in my teens the way that I coped with it was wasn't therapy because I remember my mum saying to me like and my dad like and the vicar as well trying to talk to me about it and I think <laughs> I did have one session maybe with the vicar and I liked him so I didn't really mind it but I just didn't want to talk about it and yeah. I, I kept saying to my mum you know I'm writing songs and it was almost like writing songs was a way to connect to him because mm. he'd been a musician and I kind of always wanted to be and prior to that I mean I had actually written songs based on like Prince tracks so I, I think at the age of like 10 I wrote a song called Love Machine do you know what I mean it was like really wrong on every level I didn't even know what it meant but, yeah. um, but I would write all these like poppy I don't know very romantic kind of songs and the other person that really inspired me through my teenage years was Madonna funnily enough which was quite strange because from the age of like 
maybe five I was obsessed with her and I, I love True Blue and it was the first album I ever bought and then because of that story of her mother dying she used to talk about it quite openly mm. and it would be in like smash hits or all those kind of magazines we'd read when we were kids and I always remember seeing it as this kind of like fairy tale it almost wasn't real the idea yeah. that she'd lost her mother like in a fairy tale book or something and that that and then she'd gone to New York and only had $30 and then become this superstar so I always had that as some kind of template in my head yeah. and then when she did Blonde Ambition and she did that Truth or Dare documentary, I was watching that and I managed to watch it when I was really, really young because I think it came out in like 91, 92 and mm. I, I was probably 11, 12. So it's before my brother had died. And it was the first time I'd seen um, kind of gay men you know, represented in such a joyful, fun, quite childlike way, actually, because even though they mm. were in their 20s, these people, and Madonna was maybe even 30 by then, they were all acting like kids, kind of like my yeah. age group. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I love her and I think she's great, but she was quite immature in a way. Um, and I think she was a bit of a diva and it was all this big performance. And I really connected to that. And I, I think that idea of representation and seeing yourself, you know, it's being talked a lot about now within art because of the whole kind of um, movements that have happened you know if you think about Black Lives Matter and the importance of kind of figuration and the, the the gaps in art history I think that representation of kind of queer identity but also this idea of you can survive and you can have lost your mother at the age of five mm. and still become a successful person in the world was such a kind of thing that I carried with me. But do you, you say you were like angry as a teenager? Like I was so angry as a teenager and I was kind of angry beforehand but for me like you said the death I definitely understand that I did take it somehow as a rejection and mm. it took me it took me a long time to accept he just died he didn't do it to sort of piss me off yes. <laughs> like something in it felt very 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 personal yeah. and I think when you're a teenager you, you translate that as oh I've done I guess I did something wrong because people go away when you do things wrong like yeah. when you're a dick yeah, they yeah. don't want to talk to you do you think the anger was coming just from deeply buried grief I remember the day after he died I sat mm. in a bath because I think I used to find that kind of like a healing experience mm. or something I don't know like on a kind of sensory level and I remember sitting in the bath and being like oh my god I'm gay and my brother's died and he was straight my parents aren't going to have kids anymore like you know like uh, grand <sighs> grandkids sorry. Yeah. Um, and I felt this huge pressure for years afterwards about that so that was a big part of it too and I think I felt kind of like why have you done this to, about mm. my brother so it was kind of like I think I always felt like I could have been myself because my brother would have fulfilled those yeah. things that you need to do in in a family which I do know later was ridiculous because your parents love you for whoever you are but when I was you know I was born in 1980 so I grew up in the 80s when the AIDS crisis was happening and I remember like leaflets coming through our door with that kind mm -hmm. of like tombstone. Yes, um, oh my God. I remember watching the advert, kind of yeah. Yeah, the adverts on TV. Yeah. And this idea of it all being super threatening and so I already had that inbuilt but also there was no concept of gay people adopting or having children or even no, being no. that mainstream or accepted in the way that it's gone on to happen you know there was no talk of surrogacy so in my head I just assumed I was never allowed to have children and it would never happen so I just felt this huge guilt that I carried with me for a good 10 years and wow. I kind of was annoyed at my brother for it yeah I just felt like you know of course of course and also you're annoyed in a way that only a, a little brother can be <laughs> yeah, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean like that dynamic of like yeah. oh, oh, like because that's what you've spent like you said you when you have an older brother like you spend most of the time being like furious at each other yeah, for, yeah, yeah. you know you're trying to like discover who you are at the same time as this person is so I completely understand that and I you know there wasn't there wasn't any representation of of gay people living like a normal happy life no. in a sense like you said with a family or children at all at no. all it was like 
of course you felt that guilt. But there was definitely this drive I had. And I remember going to the library at school one day and found this book by Hayden Herrera about Frida Kahlo's life. And I started reading that. And I remember thinking like you can survive through trauma. And mm. also Tori Amos's story of her rape and how she could sort of turn it around and setting up the Rape and Incest National Network in, in America. And I found her story incredibly, you know, these were, it was kind of like the sense of solidarity or something. Yeah. And it really pulled me through. And um, David Hockney as well, I think I saw that you could exist in the world as a gay person and, and it's okay, you know. I think that's really interesting though that you had the foresight to find those figures. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. You sort of saw people who'd been through trauma and were like, oh, they survived. Like I was, I loved Tori Amos, but more it was like, oh, well, she's in pain, I'm in pain. Like, that was right. as far as I got. Right, right, right. <laughs> or like Fiona Apple, I went for a big I, Me too, Apple. I was obsessed oh. with her. Because it was so like, inspiring. she's in so... And I remember like, I remember playing one of her albums once and my friend was in the room and my friend stopped and was like, sorry, do you listen to this all the time? And I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, and she went, how, how are you listening to this? Like, this is the saddest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, because I thought, but this is how I feel. (laughs) And I was like, do you not? She was like, I can't, this is so depressing. And I was like, wow, that's what's in my fucking head. And to me, Fiona made it normal. Cause I was like, oh great. Yeah, she hates herself. I hate myself. Great, yeah, 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 that's normal. (laughs) It took my friend saying it to make me go, "Mm, yeah, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not all right. not in a bad way just in a oh I probably do need some therapy (laughs) and actually they those artists like Fiona Apple's a really great example as well they were artists that I kind of they were like a template in a way you know Mm. for me to do what I did with my music and the first album I made was called The Invisible Line and actually it's the opposite to what we're saying about my brother like my history is all over the internet and you can see my hideous long hair and like all my bad (laughs) music videos but um my first album was called The Invisible Line and it was very much I had this almost like a mission that I wanted to connect to people in tiny towns all over America and all over like Asia and all over the world and that they would know they weren't alone and that was really my driving force so it was almost like some kind of like pressure I'd put on myself so I was touring America for a good like year or two and we used to go for like big batches of time where you'd go for like you know eight ten weeks or whatever and then come back for a few weeks and then go back and um I remember just it slowly was growing like the interest in the band and I did a duet with a singer called Imogen Heap and I I did like um some tracks with Guy Sigsworth who'd actually produced Madonna and they were like really taking off in the States. So we were getting these tours and I toured with um, Darren Hayes from Savage Garden. And, and I remember being on these tours and these, these young kind of teenage girls and guys were like started to follow us from every town. And they would come from like New York to San Francisco to LA and they'd do the whole of the, the East Coast or the West Coast wow. and, and travel with us. And I remember thinking like, this is what I wanted. I wanted to connect to these people. So mm. I, I, I really took it on. So I never did any drugs. I never drank. I did nothing. I behaved myself. Like I was in a monogamous relationship for seven years and I was on these tours and after every gig, I would go and talk to all of these fans and spend ages taking on their stuff because Mm. I felt like I wanted to help everybody. And it became some kind of thing that wasn't just like a normal pop band for me. It was like, (laughs) it was so bizarre. Like a religion. Like it's like, Kind of, yeah. It was just really weird. And I eventually started doing therapy and then realized that I think all the music was just me trying to deal with my brother's grief and once I dealt with it I didn't want to write music anymore it was really strange I just felt like that chapter in my life had come to an end and I'd got more and more obsessed with art and wanted to help facilitate artists and support artists so um yeah that's what I did Um, I think that's I completely understand that like when I started the podcast you know three or nearly four years ago like I all I wanted to do was to find that 15 year old in a suburb 
and make her feel that she wasn't alone. Like I, that's all I cared about. I was exactly. like, if that 15 year old it, it will Google grief podcast and will find this, then she will listen and she will be like, oh, what's happened to me isn't, I'm, I'm not weird, I'm not unique, this is what happens, this is life. And I completely understand that like fire in your heart to like, I have to help them because someone didn't help me. Like exactly. it wasn't there, it wasn't there. And I'm sure I was offered help, but I always yeah, turned same, it away. Same. You know? yeah. And I think you do also just have to find it at the time that's right. For, yes for you as well it's interesting as well you know you think of that whole 80s generation of parents i mm. think there was this whole thing of like coming from post-world war like two from world war two sorry um you you didn't talk about things you kind of had a stiff upper lip you kind of you you didn't talk about private issues whereas i feel like our generation we we are talking about things and that's actually why podcasts are so liberating because you can talk about really heavy issues and actually reach so many people because they're free to download yeah. so in a way i remember when this took off my boss carl friedman who i work with he hates me calling him the boss because <laughs> we're kind of like we, we, <laughs> we, we work very closely together yeah, and yeah. we both have a very big input in the gallery and what we do but um he he said to me I think the reason this is going so well for you is that you've always this has been your whole thing like for the mm. whole of your life is the idea of connecting to other people and their pain and their trauma and somehow you know healing through that or something um, yeah and I think it doesn't like you said I think it's really interesting that it was music now it's art like what you're discovering is is like it doesn't matter what the medium is <clears throat> what's important <laughs> somebody yeah. wank it is the message yes. and what you're trying to do is connect with people and I've yeah I completely understand that like I you know I used to do a lot more comedy than I do now mm. because I found a bit like you said with the music like it was a way of processing the trauma mm. but not getting too near it felt really safe it was like I can write about it I can make jokes and everyone's laughing and no one can see how how sad I am mm. and then as I had therapy I was like oh I feel more I can be okay with the sadness and actually I barely I barely gig anymore at all I do improv but that's like my fun thing um but I don't do my characters anymore because I got to this point where it felt like it felt like old clothes, you know, like, right, like this yeah. doesn't fit anymore. I can't, no, exactly. I can't, That's exactly I can't put what this, I had. Yeah, yeah, I was like, tried to put this jacket on. I was like, what, who wore this? And you're like, you did. And you're like, no, oh, I've, I've just changed. And yeah. it's like another little grief, isn't it? You're like, oh, okay. I, I, that was really helpful. I really enjoyed it. It really helped, but I do have to let that go and yeah. find something else. Yeah, but yeah. it's, yeah. You know, this whole thing of like not talking mm. about like, I think I kind of got that from my parents or grandparents' generation, maybe. And like, I'm just someone that loves to talk. But the therapy that helped me most was where I didn't talk. So really? I, I, I had another trauma and I went to do EMDR, which is this oh, thing where yes. you kind of hold like buzzing rocks mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. And, um, and it, it seemed so ridiculous. And the thing I found strangest was he wouldn't let me talk about what the traumas were. So I did this one for the first trauma and it really healed me. And I'd been on a flight from London to Miami for work. And I watched a film called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. With Tilda Swinton. And I broke down watching this film and I couldn't stop crying. So for the whole like seven hours of the flight or 10 hours, whatever the flight was, I was just in crying so much. They had to move me into first class <laughs> so that I would have my own, my own space. And this is something oh people don't God. talk about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. This is years later and mm. I was grieving so much. So I finally dealt with two of these traumas. One was my brother's death and we did my brother's death second. And they, they say to you like, on a scale of one to 10, how traumatized are you feeling or how upset are you feeling? Mm. And I'd gone from like 13, you know, like way over 10 yeah. down to like two on both of my brother's death and wow. the other trauma. And it really helped me though. And after that day, I was like a different person. 
you know I'd actually got to the point where you couldn't hug me and I'm still a bit like that now like yeah. I didn't want any physical intimacy from strangers you know I didn't want to be kissed on the cheek I really hated it all I'd become quite kind of like di- just wanted to protect myself the whole mm. time and I remember Carl like tapping me on the shoulder after I'd done the therapy and he was like oh my god I think you're I think you're you're you again like <laughs> you're no longer like trying to like you know Flinch. fight me back yeah and it was really powerful though and it's interesting that you can have these types of therapies that are like mm. so powerful without talking and, yeah that's um, really especially if you are a talker like because yeah. I'm the same I'm such a talker <laughs> so but then I think yeah I'm I'm currently in talking therapy but I, I definitely get into the point where I'm like oh I can talk myself out of anything can't I so I might have to start listening yeah thanks that's what we, we uh, and there is for. also a thing though of talking therapy where they say that you can re-traumatize yourself mm, yeah, especially that's true. with kind of like sexual violence and things like that I think yeah, it's really yeah. bad it can be bad to actually relive the experience but so for years after maybe two years after I did because I think I did it in like 2011 so maybe for two years after EMDR I felt like I wasn't allowed to talk and oh. I'd got to the point where suddenly I was so physically like okay with myself I'd kind yeah. of physically let, let the grief kind of leave my body yeah. um, and then I felt like I wanted to talk and it was really conflicting because I kept thinking like but I'm not supposed to talk because it's going to yeah, re-traumatize yeah. me and um and then eventually I did talking therapy and it's just been incredible. And I think that's why we do talk art because I don't think I would have ever done talk art if I hadn't mm. done therapy because it is a bit like a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also I think I found like the more that I've had therapy, the more I'm able to talk about other things because like you yes. said, it's not the first thing that's in your head. It's not this like yes. boulder, especially I think if you have a bereavement or suffer a trauma as a teenager, as a young child, you're just carrying it around with you. It's this like thing that happened to you that you're trying to deny all the time. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Even though this rock is so fucking heavy. Yeah. And I found as I talked about it and it got easier and I, you know, like, I really understand, like, let grief come out my body, cried, just admitted I was sad. And then I was like, oh, I can actually have a conversation about something else because it's not like just like you're wearing grief goggles. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's what I think sometimes people, that phrase like, oh, time's a healer is confusing. Cause you're like, well, I just have to fucking wait. You're like, no, no, it, it, you need that perspective. That. And yeah, it's horrible. It's awful. It was so but, annoying. But now 20 plus years in, I'm like, oh, I can see that. I can now see more what I'm doing, what worked, what didn't work, what I need to do when I'm having bad days, what, when I'm okay. Like that's actually where that, fra- like the root of that phrase, but it's such a and useless phrase when it's happened to you. You just said something that really reminded me of another thing that happened. I remember when I was 17 and I was the same age that he was. Oh, God, yeah. And um, when I turned 17, it really hurt me. And there Mm. was this idea that time was a healer and that by 17, I thought I should have healed. And I remember it really hitting me bad. And like, um, I have this thing that then happened when I outgrew his age. So when I became 18, 19, and I became older than him, for years, it was a strange phenomenon. I remember it really traumatizing Mm. me as well. Like it was this extra layer of, of kind of this odd thing that somehow I felt guilty that I'd outgrown him and he was no longer my older brother. And like, it was a very (sighs) odd, odd thing. Yeah. It's, I think that's so common. And also like, don't you just wish you could say to that child, like, I remember being like that oh well by 20 I should be over this like come on five years and you're like of course of course you're not over it by 17 like I've got like why you'll never be you know over it this idea you carry it you get better at it you understand it but I think that age thing I had another guest talk about that um who'd lost a sister and yeah I can of course of course once you start overtaking them we've got it slightly differently that like none of like me and my brother are not my dad's age yet but we're we're heading towards it and I know that's going to be weird <laughs> like that, difficult painful too, you, you've had kids now haven't you mm, yeah, yeah yeah have you got two kids 
I've got two. Yeah, I had one yeah. just before lockdown. <laughs> oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Um, but I think I heard that because I, I think grief, you, your response to grief can change over time. So yes. when you, if you move to a new house, if you have a new relationship, if mm. you make a new friend, you know, all kinds of things um, can actually change your perspective and the way you look back on grief. And I've also realized that like a lot of my cousins have died over the years and like I've had this a lot of trauma in, in my life, strangely. And even a friend... Uh, about 10 years or 11 years after my brother died, he killed himself. So there was all these kind of deaths that kept happening. And what I've begun to realize is that grief shifts and changes with every mm. person that dies. And it's never the same experience. And yeah. it's a really weird realization because I think I always thought it was going to be the same. Mm. So every time someone died, I was like, right, I know how to deal with this. But you never do because actually time and your experiences and I guess, you know, if you get married, suddenly that 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 that, that dynamic would, not that I have because I'm single now but um <laughs> but when you when you do get married or, or you're going out with somebody I think you then have a dynamic that maybe reminds you of your parents dynamic or yeah, there's yeah. all these kind of layers so with grief it's like so complicated and it's yeah. so within all those emotions you know it's, it's a it's a deep 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 rooted thing yeah oh, definitely definitely and I think I've got better at letting that change I think for a long time I've I've fought it I was like no I'm just getting married nothing's changed it's no big deal it doesn't matter he's still dead so what and now I'm like yeah you know you've had a baby you've moved out like or something does well in your career or you're like oh and now I just kind of let the sadness come up and be like oh I wish he was here to see this he's not okay there it is for a bit and because I don't fight it it's it just comes and goes and I and it's you know so what? much That's easier such good advice is like just just roll with it and yeah. don't try and control it because it's okay you're going to feel something it's actually a natural thing to to feel that um grief it's a mm. helpful natural process in a way that your body and your mind is creating to protect you and I think what I did I remember walking down the street the week after my brother died actually to go and buy Madonna's single secret or something <laughs> it just come out and I remember thinking like everyone on the street is just going with their daily business mm. and my brother's just died and I was so furious about it and I almost felt like I was putting on this armor to go into battle and I yeah. held that armor on until I was 27 or something do you know what I mean I carried yes, it with I me do. and I that do. strength and that and that thing and and the, the the kind of focus I put on my music career is kind of why it did take off to a level you mm. know to a point where I was touring where I got my records out all over the world and all that stuff was because I was so focused and so it was all from anger though it was all yeah. from this kind of trying to be the strongest person I could ever be mm. but actually I think it's healthy not to do that too much you need it to survive yeah and I've experienced it with other trauma where like the day after you just act like nothing's happened and you can mm. just walk outside and go on for a year and then then I'll break down you know a yeah. year later whether it be a breakup you know w whatever it is and I have to tell myself now when I have emotional situations not necessarily grief but in any or even a challenging business situation mm. to just allow yourself to feel it in that moment and not to be this strong superhero that's wearing a suit of armor and is going out for the next two years because it's actually really harmful to, to, to you. Yeah I mean that's literally what my entire therapy sessions have been about is like and I think I wonder I wonder I don't know if that does happen when you lose someone very young is that you, because you're confused because you don't understand you like you said I completely relate you put on this armor and you feel like okay I, I can deal with the world I, because you're no one is getting through no one is getting through to yeah. this this that I am like you think you know me no one knows me I'm fine <laughs> like these hundreds of walls you build up and you think you think you've done a good thing like I thought oh that's good I figured it out that's what you have to do with grief you have to really protect yourself and don't ever like you know don't ever get too close or engage or you know <laughs> ever ever let go of anything because you have to be in control and realizing like no actually like you said that's unhelpful but that again takes 
perspective takes time takes maturity so I think like don't I always say to people like whatever whatever place you are on the journey don't berate yourself like it just will come and go and get easier and better someone said to me that the best thing you can do is like sort of look after yourself so that your mum won't worry or your or your you know work colleagues won't worry about you anymore mm. and I think that's also quite important and it doesn't I, I don't want it to be like a pressure because it because it sounds like I'm being quite <laughs> strict about it but I think in quite a kind of healing way it's just good to take care of yourself um and try and have fun as well and enjoy yourself because <laughs> I think I've spent way too many years taking everything so seriously yeah same <laughs> but I've learned like since my friendship with Russell actually Russell Tovey like he's made me laugh you know like for the first time I never really had friends that made me laugh like yeah. in my belly and I think that's why we've we've only ever had one argument and it was last week in the whole <laughs> time we've, you know um because I was so exhausted from everything we had yeah, a little yeah. bizarre argument over nothing but like he's the one person in my life that made me laugh and I'm I'm really holding on to that now because we're only here for a short time and you may as well enjoy yourself and even if you're single like I am that doesn't matter either because your friendships are just as important you know and I, I think it's a I'm feeling super lucky at the moment and grateful and I don't know it's like a bit cheesy no it's good <laughs> what, but it's I a think really, it is something to remember yeah and I think it's a really good a good place to to end what a nice message to end on yeah and exactly. thank you so much for talking to us about andrew You're so really welcome. thank you for really me. appreciate it thank you you can follow robert on twitter and instagram at robert diamant that's d-i-a-m-e-n-t and the official talk art book which he's written with russell toby is available for pre-order now you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. Music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. Show is edited by Kate Holland. Artwork by Jade Perkin. And remember, you're not alone. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.